heard that unmistakable sound of an avalanche. It still took me a second to register what I had heard. I don't know what it would be like to have other people around to help me with the beacon search, but I do know what it feels like to be alone. And it's a horrible, horrible feeling. And you do feel completely powerless. I'm Rebecca Huntington. You're listening to The Fine Line. Real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. This episode of The Fine Line is supported by Raintree Foundation, a family foundation with a strong attachment to Wyoming, and in particular, the Jackson Hole region. Raintree's primary focus is education, but the foundation also supports a variety of projects that bring people into the outdoors, and through Teton County Search and Rescue, help them return when needed. You can support the volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue by making an online donation today. Go to tetoncountysar.org donate. You can support The Fine Line by going to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and giving us a review. In this episode, Matt Hansen from the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation explores the tragic outcome and lessons learned from an avalanche last year on Teton Pass. On April 1st, 2020, Anna Matire joined her friend Trace Carrillo for a backcountry snowboard tour on Taylor Mountain, a peak that rises above 10,300 feet on the west side of Teton Pass. To reach the summit, they would use climbing skins attached to their splitboards to go up more than 3,000 vertical feet. To get down, they would have to navigate several prominent avalanche paths. Taylor Mountain is big and dangerous. Its south face looms like a large cresting wave as you drive west over the pass. Previously, the mountain had been the site of at least two avalanche fatalities and many more close calls over the years. And yet it remains a popular tour for experienced backcountry skiers. Though Matire had been in Jackson for only two years, she was motivated to be among the experienced. Like many 20-somethings who moved to a ski town to pursue life in the mountains, the Madison, Wisconsin native found excitement and inspiration while exploring the wilderness with new friends. She had taken an avalanche one class and picked off numerous big days in the Jacksonville backcountry. Working as a lifty and a rental shop employee at Jacksonville Mountain Resort, she snowboarded just about every day all winter long. Meanwhile, Carrillo was among the experienced. He'd spent three seasons as an intern with the Utah Avalanche Center, learning from some of the most knowledgeable forecasters in the country. He'd led no-before-you-go presentations, installed beacon check stations, and had completed his Level 2 avalanche course. Since 2017, he'd worked for the U.S. Forest Service as a wilderness ranger. After growing up in New Mexico, he considered the Tetons his home and spent many days exploring the backcountry on his splitboard. The morning of the 1st, the Bridger-Teton Avalanche Center rated the avalanche hazard as moderate, above 7,500 feet. With over a foot of new snow, the Avalanche Center warned of wind slabs in steep, high-elevation terrain. With COVID-19 shutting down the local ski areas in Grand Teton National Park, access points on Teton Pass were being swarmed by backcountry skiers and snowboarders, including the trailhead to Taylor. 
in this two-part series of The Fine Line, we'll hear from Matire about how she lost Carrillo in an avalanche. She'll talk about the brutal lessons she learned and her struggle to cope and move forward. She spoke to me this winter while living and working on an off-the-grid farm, so the audio isn't perfect. Also remember that the only way we can learn from stories like this is to keep an open mind. Instead of ostracizing people who make mistakes, we should commend them for their honesty and courage in coming forward. And one other thing, while living in Jackson, Matire says she got in the habit of calling snowboarding skiing. Her story begins on March 31st, when she's looking for a partner to go snowboarding the next day. I was really excited to do some skiing, so I was rummaging through my mind trying to think of who I could reach out to to go for a ski, and Trace came to mind because we had just gone on a really enjoyable tour the week before in the park. So I hit him up, and he was instantly excited to do something. I was kind of just looking to him to to lead the way. Whatever he was excited to do, I was excited to to do as well because I was happy to have someone who wanted to go out in the backcountry with me, me being like pretty new to the to the backcountry scene in Jackson and also like having aspired to become a part of that community for so long. Just having someone like Trace who was so experienced and so willing to take me out was really exciting and inspiring for me. In the morning, uh, I woke up to text from Trace suggesting that we go later than planned by a couple hours we were supposed to meet up at nine and he suggested that we meet up at 11 instead me being flexible and following trace's lead that was that was okay with me although i usually liked to leave earlier in the day to avoid any warming that could be happening in the afternoon but it looked on the weather app like the temperatures were going to stay at 32 or below so i felt okay about waiting those couple extra hours We were in the parking lot. It was totally packed, um, as was pretty common last spring after the resort shut down. And we actually weren't sure if we were going to be skiing the Pyramid or if we were going to be skiing Taylor. Um, And it was a last-minute decision to go over and check out Taylor because I hadn't skied Taylor before, and I could tell that Trace was excited about getting me in some new terrain because, because I was excited about it. In the parking lot... I was thinking about doing a beacon check and initiating a beacon beacon check with Trace, and I didn't end up doing that. Trace didn't either. I guess I think I've thought of it as, like, trying to respect his leadership, and I don't actually think that that is a justification. I don't think it's a good reason to not initiate a beacon check. I can now come from a place of more compassion for myself in that moment. I can understand that I was just trying to be respectful of this person who I really admired and really appreciated. And so we headed over to Taylor. We both felt from the moderate on the avalanche forecast that the snowpack was probably going to be pretty pretty stable and that we would assess it on our way up because... There was the bale exit from the top could be the southeast ridge, I think, was kind of our our thought process. that We would have several options of um, ways down that involved 
more risk and some that involved less risk. We made our way up the mountain and the skin was really enjoyable and it was a beautiful day. It was like overcast sky with little bits of snow coming down, kind of felt like we were inside of a cloud, sparkling snowflakes in the air, but not not a lot of them, kind of a magical scene. And I remember that he remarked on how beautiful the day was. And I really appreciated that because I didn't know many other people who would voice such an appreciation for a gray bird day. And I really liked that. So on our way up, we both kind of did some individual feeling out of the snow. I went at one point, um, went off of our skin track to use nature's restroom. And I was like, you know, pushing with my ski down on the snow. And I, I noticed that it like broke away in a bigger slab than I would have anticipated. And it did kind of feel like the temperature was warming actually, as we were going up. And so when I came back to Trace and I, and I told him about that, he agreed that we would do a cornice test and we would probably stay in the treed area on like the south face of Taylor and we'd try to take some lower angle terrain on the way down. So we did a cornice test and um, Trace knocked off good size cornice and it didn't trigger anything, which, you know, made us feel pretty good. We were breaking our own trail at that point. Uh, there wasn't a skin track set in front of us. We had noticed that there, there was a skin track going up about halfway and what ended up happening was that we actually did meet another group of people at the top of Taylor on the summit, but they had taken kind of a more roundabout way. So we weren't actually the first people to ski that area that day, um, but we thought that we might be. So then we got to the summit and we enjoyed our lunch and we had some conversation. I remember like Trace told me some things about his family and he made a joke about buying a case of Corona and texting his mom and telling her that he had a case of Corona <laughs> and that she would tell him to not joke about the virus. So then we were trying to figure out which way we wanted to go down. And there was this like cooler um, on like more of an East facing aspect from the summit that we briefly considered, but because of the, the unexpected warmth top and like the like slab breaking off under my ski on the way up. I, I actually was like, I said, I didn't want to do that because it seemed like it would be more wind loaded um, than the path that we had, we had kind of scoped out on the way up. Uh, so we decided to kind of stick with our original plan and stay on um, what we thought was more low angled terrain and a bit treed, and um, a south-facing aspect where I guess we were hoping that there wouldn't be so much wind loading, or at least that, I think, was our thought process. So we took a few turns down, and at that point, Trace told me that I could have the honors and I could go ahead and take the first fresh turns. Like I said before, I had never skied Taylor. I didn't know where I was going when I took my first few turns, Instead of ending up where I told Trace I was going to be and where I would have been visible to him, I decided that it would be safer for me to go a few turns below that so that I would have a better exit plan if an avalanche were to happen. 
I felt better in that other spot. So I did that. And it meant that Trace couldn't see me. I tried to call out to him and say, hey, it's like good for you to come down. And I don't know if you heard me or not, but eventually he must have gotten the memo because he starts to come down. And I see him, he emerges from the trees. And I am like, oh, shoot, I totally forgot to take a video of him. And this happened a lot because I felt like my friends were always remembering to take footage of me, but I never would remember to have my camera out in time or my phone out in time to take a video so I whipped my phone out as fast as I could and I pressed the play button and um, the same second that I pressed play I heard that unmistakable sound of an avalanche it still took me a second to register what I had heard and I looked up and I saw the snow moving under Trace's feet. And I saw a very distinct bottom of the slab coming towards me. It was very close to me, actually. Like, I, since I have it on video, I'm able to see that the slab was probably between like 10 and 20 feet from me when it broke. And the last time I saw Trace, I saw him on his feet and it looked like the slab had broken, just had propagated like under his feet. So I thought that perhaps it hadn't propagated up above him and that he could ride out to safety. But since the slab was coming at me and it was so close to me, I didn't have time to like sit there and analyze like what exactly was going on. So I turn around and I ride away as fast as I can. I knew that I needed to put all my focus into what I was doing um, because it could mean my life. And so it turns out that I was riding away for 18 seconds based on the video that I took because the video was still playing until I stopped riding and I called out for a trace. That's when I paused the video and I actually heard something. I heard someone respond to me when I first called out and said, Trace, are you okay? And I heard a response, but I couldn't under, I couldn't hear exactly what was said and I couldn't see anybody. So I, of course, wanted to think that that was Trace saying, hey, I'm okay. And I thought maybe he's on the other side of this ridge. What happened with the avalanche is when it was triggered, it followed it followed the, the avalanche path there, which was this like kind of deep gully on the south face of Taylor. Uh, so I'd hoped that maybe he had escaped somehow and ridden over the, the ridge on the other side of the gully from where I was and that maybe I just couldn't hear him anymore because there was that terrain blocking us. We didn't have radios. He had a radio. I didn't have one. And God do I wish I would have had one at that time because I wish that they would have been turned on and that I could have like tried to communicate with Trace and not heard an answer and had it been a little bit more clear to me that he was most likely buried. Uh, it was really challenging being in that position of, of the last time I had seen him, he was not buried. He, he wasn't fully taken with the avalanche. It looked like there was a potential for him to ride out of it. And the idea of him possibly being buried was so extremely overwhelming that I could not let my mind fully go there. I do remember at one point when I started my, my beacon search for him, I remember that that thought really like clicked for a moment in my head that he 
is probably buried under the snow. And if that if he's buried, he's probably going to die. And I remember that clicking for a moment. And I literally had to push it out of my brain because it, even in that, just that second that I understood that, it, it threatened to totally consume my ability to function. So I had to push that out of my mind. And I, I think I held on to the hope that he could be alive and he could be looking for me somewhere to help me like carry out what I needed to carry out. So I started to do my beacon search and it was haphazard. I would say it was not as efficient as I would have liked it to be. I mean, of course we all want to think that like if we're in a position where we need to save our friend, we want to think that we would be capable of, of, moving the most efficiently that we've ever moved in our lives to be able to save this person that means so much to us. And the reality is that we don't, we don't always get to be the superhero that we want to think that we could be. And I've had to really come to terms with that. In the world of avalanches, 15 minutes is everything. Studies have shown that your chances of surviving after being buried in an avalanche are actually pretty good if you're found within 15 minutes, as long as you don't have associated trauma. But after 15 minutes, your chances of surviving drop off significantly. I once took an avalanche course from Bruce Tremper, the legendary snow scientist who directed the Utah Avalanche Center for nearly 30 years. He told our class that most of the people he skis with probably wouldn't be able to find him in 15 minutes, and that he probably wouldn't be able to find them. In his book, Staying Alive in Avalanche Terrain, Tremper writes, Rescues, even by professionals, are usually a mess. With the inherent problems of wild emotions, impossible time constraints, lack of resources, nightmarish communication problems, and foul weather, it's a wonder that any rescues succeed at all. As Matire frantically searched for her friend buried in the snow, it was all she could do just to keep herself together and hope that her beacon would pick up a signal. So the beacon search was a bit scrambled. I first like started doing the beacons. I left my backpack um, and my board and because the last place I had seen him was up above me. So at first I thought that I had to start hiking up to try to figure out, could he be buried up above me? And I left my backpack. I had my shovel and my probe in it. So then I had to run back and grab my backpack and then I like restarted the search and I'm boot packing going uphill and this, you know, avalanche debris that I'm sinking up to at least my knees and it's going horribly slow. And I'm already engaging in the really negative self-talk about how incapable I am and like how he, if he's under the snow, it's already been three minutes. He's already definitely suffocating. I think that we all want to think that we will be capable of maintaining a clear mind under that unimaginable stress. I know that I wanted to think that of myself. And I think that it's taken me a really long time and a lot of work to get to this place. But I think that I, I do believe that I did the, I did the best that I could at the time with what I was given and, I don't actually think that I did a bad job. (laughs) I mean, sometimes I do, but I want to get to a place where I can be impressed that I was even able to keep my shit together at all. 
I don't know what it would be like to have other people around to help me with a beacon search, but I do know what it feels like to be alone. And it's a horrible, horrible feeling. And you do feel completely powerless. For me, like being alone, it felt like it amplified the confusion from that stress because I didn't have anybody around to to help me like make a plan and to be able to move in more than than just one direction at once because of course from the second that the avalanche happened and I did I couldn't see trace I wanted to be able to move in at five or more directions all at one time but being just one person I could only move in one direction at a time and I think that that overwhelm from from wishing that I could go that I could carry out several different tasks all at once was part of what created all of that chaos in my head and caused me to leave my backpack behind me on my first attempt. Before I realized that I needed to go get my backpack, that was probably like 10 steps. It's not like it. I was like super far away from my bag, but because I was post-holing, it felt like an eternity to get back to it. And then that feeling of like having wasted time in a critical moment is pretty disheartening. I think in my head, I decided that I was really idealistic, but that I was about 50 meters from where I had last seen Trace. And so I wanted to think that like if he was buried up there, that my beacon would have picked up on him. And then I also realized that it was much more likely for him to be near where I was or below me in the avalanche path further down the mountain. So that was when I put my board on and I started, I kept doing the beacon search. Actually, I, you know, was zigzagging back and forth. I was going down the gully and eventually that gully constricts, it narrows and it looked like it dropped off over something and I couldn't see what it was. So I thought that it was, it looked like it could be cliffs. And I wasn't sure if they were going to be big cliffs or little cliffs or there was going to be a way to get around that. But what I knew was that I didn't want to be stuck on top of a cliff band and have to take my board off and post hole all the way back up or up and over the ridge on the other side of the gully because that sounded like it would just take such a long time. So I felt like, you know, this is all like happening split second decisions and without anybody else to run these really really like the most horribly challenging decisions I've ever had to make in my life so I decided that I felt it best to try to ride up on top of the ridge bordering the gully and see how far I could make it down from up there instead of taking the chance that I might have to post hole my way back up if I get cliff if I got cliffed out um unfortunately I got to a place on the ridge where I encountered some cliffs. What happened was that there was a secondary avalanche path. So I decided to follow the secondary avalanche path. And so the primary one that was like on the other side of this ridge that I've been talking about, I followed that path down until it fizzled out. And then at that point it was, the snow was getting really wet and really heavy. And I started to get, I started to become kind of afraid of a wet slide happening to me. I was kind of in like an exposed area at the time and kind of in a terrain trap. So there was yet another gully 
So the the primary avalanche path was in a gully to my right, on skier's right. And there was another gully to my left. And I don't even know how accurate this really is because uh, it's just based on my traumatized memory from this day. <laughs> but I remember there being kind of another gully and then it went up um, into a treed area with kind of like, I think that's kind of where the southeast ridge comes down. So I was very nervous to do this actually at the time, but I crossed through that terrain trap in that wet, heavy snow over to the treed area. And that was when I felt like I was kind of like giving up on the beacon search. Although in my mind, like I was still hopeful that maybe my beacon was transmitting enough, like far enough that it could reach him if he was buried. But at that point I was so afraid of um, wet slides that I was thinking about my family and I was trying to keep myself safe that was when my feelings of incapableness, stupidity, and failing, that's when that all started to kind of kick in. And I actually started like falling a lot on my snowboard. And I just felt the smallest I've ever felt. And I felt so alone. And I was calling out for help. And of course, no one could hear me. And I fell in the flat area on the way out and couldn't get momentum again I had to take my board off and I ran into a woman on my way out I told her that there had been avalanche and she she came back to the parking lot with me let me use her phone that's when I called search and rescue my tires beacon never did pick up Carrillo that afternoon and evening volunteers with Teton County search and rescue combed through the slide path and searched through the deep snow with pro poles without success the next morning the volunteers returned along with a dog team from Jacksonville Mountain Resort. A few minutes after the dogs were released, they got a positive hit. Carrillo's lifeless body was found under two feet of snow. It was discovered that while he was wearing a beacon, it had not been turned on. He was 28 years old. This experience has given me insight that I don't think that many people have in terms of what it's like (laughs) to be alone looking for somebody in a situation like this. It would be hard even if you knew what the terrain was in front of you, but it is even harder where you're not familiar with the terrain, you're not familiar with the aspect that you're skiing. You've never skied this mountain before, and there was no, like, collaboration and looking at a map or anything like that beforehand. When Search and Rescue finally did show, how did they respond? When they first arrived, like, I didn't want to look any of them in the eye. I was ashamed for, because I felt like it was my fault that they had to come out there during COVID. Um, And I thought that they were going to maybe be frustrated with me or look down on me and it was the opposite of that it seems to me like everyone on search and rescue understands the emotional toll that events like this take on the people who have experienced them and they take that really really seriously and they showed me just the most amazing empathy, 
love and support in that parking lot that day and the next. I feel so lucky for having that experience with them because it helped me feel like I could return back to my community and my home that day without feeling like I was going to be wholly rejected, which is what I feared. And because of my interactions with Search and Rescue, they gave me hope that I might be met with empathy and compassion by my community. I think I was sitting in the sheriff's car or I was still in the parking lot and I I remember Jen Sparks coming up to me and I think she was one of the first search and rescue people I talked to and the first thing she said was, you need to know this is not your fault. This is not your fault. It was just the most amazing gift that anyone could ever give. Devastated by the loss, Matara tries to pick up the pieces and come to grips with the mistakes they made up on Taylor. But as she explains, it wasn't just about the beacon. Next time on The Fine Line. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.